Luring is by definition the direct use of the reinforcer to elicit the behavior. The detail behind that is direct. But as with any protocol we might use to teach a dog, it's only as good as its application, and that means our skills. Welcome to Learning About Dogs, a podcast for people who love learning about dogs. I'm Sue McGuire, the manager of a canine behavior program at a nonprofit animal shelter north of San Francisco. And with me, of course, is Kay Lawrence of Learning About Dogs. Kay will be starting a six-week online course on the skills of luring through Learning About Dogs. The course starts May 8th, and sign-ups are happening now. And away we go. Um, we were going to be spending a little bit of time talking about luring in this episode. And I'm just going to read something that you wrote in one of your articles about uh, how it's kind of gotten a bit of a, eh, it's not cool. It's not the, it's, there's an anti-luring brigade and I'm a pure shaper and, and yeah. that's a bunch of, bunch of hooey, huh? Well, yeah, I, I, I'm always, always interested in how, you know, the general culture gets to a certain point and often it's just one or two poor um, views that begin to dominate the understanding of it. Uh, and I think luring is one of them. I think if you look at when clicker training first became the um, go-to religion, um, luring was the standard training that was not coercive, you know, so it was mostly lure a sit, down a sit, you know, this push-ups and sit-ups and all this sort of stuff where you painted the wall. What's it, the film? Oh, it's wax on, wax off. <laughs> where you're just making the dog go up and down like a yo-yo um, to get the behaviours you wanted. And, um, you know, I think the new brigade wanted to be something different. We don't do that. That's for, that's for what's the word? Luring is for wimps? For and it's trainer. only in the dog training. Yeah, well, it's only in the dog training business. Mm-hmm. You know, you hear people, you talk to Steve Martin, who's the exotic bird trainer, and of course they lure. You know, they have no issues about luring, but they try and set it up so that the parrot or the bird can go without the lure as soon as possible. And I think that's perfectly acceptable. So why are people so frightened of luring? Well, I think it's skillful. I think it takes skills to learn to lure, and they don't want to have the time to do it. Do you think it's also um, a little bit about having too much of a narrow definition of what luring is and luring can be? But when I see somebody training um, and what they perceive luring to be, I'm almost at the point of going, oh, I see now why you wouldn't do it. Because if I thought that's what luring was, I wouldn't do it either. So I tend to view it as using the reinforcer to elicit the behavior, a direct use of the reinforcer to elicit the behavior, the direct being the measurable term, because the minute you strap on a bait bag, you're starting to lure. And actual fact, just having food in the area is luring without guidance, which I think is probably harder because it's like somebody putting dinner on the table, but you don't know what you've got to do to, before you're going to be allowed to eat it. Mm-hmm. You've got to say the right word. Uh, how about please? No, that's not the right word. so just having information to be able to know what you've got to do to get that reinforcement to me is is what we should always be doing we should always be providing information not just saying i've got food and you've got to earn it it's your problem not mine Mm -hmm. you always like to say that in way in some ways shape or form we are always luring 
I think we're always luring to some degree. If the dog can scent food, then we're luring. So the question now becomes how much, how direct is the lure? So I think at one extreme, you've got no help whatsoever, which is just you've opened the pot of food, you've said the bait bags, the shop's open. Now what are you going to do? And then at the other end, you've got the food right up the dog's nose and it's on the nose and it's eaten nibble as we go. And, you know, that's that's the two sort of extremes. So both have their uses and both have their advantages and disadvantages. So I think some people call it transport where they lure right on the dog's nose. And it can be quite useful if you need to get your dog past something that you don't want them to see. So it, it blinds them to circumstances at that moment. Or it may be that you've got a young dog that at this moment is not skilled enough to be able to walk past vomit on the pavement. Um, so you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. So you lure it past until such time. So it would work very well as a temporary um, stimulus to get a dog past the situation or um, temporary in the sense that we are still building the skills on this. So, you know, we're avoiding something. We haven't taught the dog how to do it. And then everything else comes somewhere in between. So let's go through some of the um, considerations for luring. So one of the things, it, like a protocol, only as good as the application. So what are the different ways that we can use luring? And what kinds of luring processes are there available to us? Well, I think one of the fears of luring is being able to, oh, well, you can't take the lure away. Um, so if we are aware that there's a, a value to operant conditioning where, you know, if, if we were learning how to, um, drive a car and nobody showed you how to do it, it would become quite hard work. You would learn how to ride a bicycle, but if nobody actually showed you what the bicycle was about, uh, you may be able to work it out, but it would take you much longer, but there's still a point to which it doesn't matter how much I show you how to do it. There's a part of it where you have to teach yourself how to do it. The same with swimming. A lot of skills are started with some sort of guidance or demonstration. And then we change over to teaching ourselves how to do it. And if I really want to make people suck teeth, I call this the moment where you go operant. Yes, you're, you're learning how to do something. Yeah. You go, no, no, don't show me. Don't show me. Let me have a go. And I might be slow and I might not be too good at this yet, but I want to try it out. Now, if you block that moment by continuing to show somebody how to do it, then they'll probably lose the desire to teach themselves how to do it. You often see it with um, technology. You know, when I've seen people teaching somebody else something on their computer, uh, so they will show you on the keyboard how to do it. Here we go. La -da -da -da. There you go. Okay, it's your turn now. Oh, okay, so we start off with this, this, and this. Then I start to hesitate a bit, and you know the situation. They push you aside, go, here, let me show you. That's yeah, the point where teaching becomes an art where, yes, I know you can do it and I don't want you to walk out the room in a huff because I want to learn how to do it. But the teacher then sits nearby and if I really get stuck and I don't know where to go, would help me through the process. That doesn't mean they show me how to do it. So if it's a process that might need several steps, I might forget the order of the steps. So the teacher might tell me what order the steps go in so they could give me some prompts, but they don't show me how to do it. They just assist the learning. And I think that's the big art of teaching is when to help, when to sit by and take the learner through the process they will need to do when they're working by themselves um, and when to actually show them what to do. 
So luring's coming down on that avenue. Mm-hmm. How do you teach people to lure? I mean, they shouldn't, I don't know, probably have a dog in front of them quite yet. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so if we are centering our training about reinforcement, delivery of reinforcement is probably one of our core skills for people, being able to deliver food well. If you are yes. working with a shark, let's call it a 16-week-old puppy, mm-hmm. and it's a hungry puppy. Or any Labrador. <laughs> or any Labrador. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, they live in perpetual hunger. So the minute that hand is coming towards them with food, they're going to start to want to meet it. And the natural instinct is when you see that mouth opening towards your hand is to slightly pull back because you think this is going to hurt. And as you pull back, the dog's experience will be to grab harder. So if you feed from what I call the closed fingers, you know, the poke the food in like the letterbox process and the puppy Mm -hmm. thinks, oh, my gosh, it's going to pull away. They will lunge at you all teeth out. And yes, it will hurt. And as you pull back, you're teaching that dog to lunge. Oops. So mm-hmm. I like to yeah. teach everyone to give the treat in the what I call the pony style. So the treat has to be in the middle of your hand and it should be presented in such a way that there's no hesitation. So you look at the dog, you look at where it's sitting, you look at exactly where its face is and your hand should arrive just under the muzzle without any hesitation. So if the dog was a shark and a grabber and a snatcher of food, you can now practice good delivery you put your hand in the pouch your pocket you get the food ready into the center of your hand pause deliver yes and it should be that prompt that there's no hesitation with it so that the dog is quite sure that if it's offered from the palm of your hand it is theirs to take it's not this uh -uh, pull back because they're coming in too fast um right and uh, you know i've seen some top people put videos up there the dog's in the sit they go to feed it and the dog virtually has to stretch out of the sit to reach the food well that's just poor delivery and it's rude it shouldn't happen you shouldn't if you're going to give somebody a tip you shouldn't expect them to have to lunge across the space between you to take the tip it should be given to them in such a way so food delivery to start with and if we start back chaining out of that so we have a nice clean delivery of the open hand If I want to lure, I would have the food in a shut hand. So it's it's in between my fingers, what I call the posting hand. And we give the dog a waft. And as the dog follows and orientates to that hand, you change to the open hand and deliver it back to the dog. And that's all we want the dog to do is to learn to follow, not eat on the job. So for me, luring when it's done well should look like the dog can watch this hand without lunging at it and probably keep their nose about six to ten inches away from the lure without lunging for it. And then as you change Uh your hand to the the give, that becomes your future marker. So people are learning very quickly the difference between let me show you how to go around a cone, let me show you how to go under a chair, let me show you how to take a step forward. And because you've responded, change my hand to an open hand, which is the marker, you can now eat it. Or you can throw it to the floor, you know, if it's if it's a difficult situation. So, you know, guiding, luring should be about teaching a dog to follow. And because dogs are very, very good at following scent, I like them to think of it as a scent target. So if as you move your hand through the air, um, do you remember we used to move sparklers and that's through the air? There's like that 
trail of sparkles going along. So if you imagine it like that, then that's what the dog's following. And if you go too right. fast, the, the, the dog will lose it. If you go too slow, they're going to be into your hand too quickly. So it's a wonderful, wonderful way of teaching people about the dog's body language, learning how to read the dog, learning how to move their hands in such a way the dog clearly understands what's wanted, using their own body language to back up the dog. So instead of just standing still and waving your hand around, if you want the dog to move across the front of you, then you take a step to the left. And if you want the dog to move to the right, you swap the treat over in the other hand and you take a step to the right. So, you know, it's a wonderful way to teach puppies what people do with their bodies and what it means for them. And what people do with their hands. I mean, hands, one of the things I really encourage my volunteers at the shelter to do, if there's one skill that I could teach dogs to go home with is learning how to take food reinforcers safely. And that is, yeah. Yeah. And then our job is to show new adopters how to deliver food safely. None of this uh -uh, and pull back on the hand just because you've taught the dog to snatch. Yeah. You know, do it well, do it carefully and do it with good manners you know it's a thank you it's not that sort of okay thank you he's got to do it properly you know it's no here it is it's yours thank you and it should be right in front of the dog we call it um, breakfast in bed without them having to reach out of bed to, to get it they should be say, be able to rest where they are and go gosh thank you very much and even if it's table service which is a little bit further than breakfast in bed they should be able to take it within reach and not have to lunge across the table to grab it no value in yes. grabbing it at all. So since you consider this to be almost scent targeting or visual scent luring, then let's back this up a little bit and really think about the the food reinforcers that you're deciding to employ in your training sessions. They have to have a bit of odor to them. I, I mean, so. I mean, I know they're more sense. Yeah, I, yeah. I know that, that some of the stuff I see you guys use in England, I'm going, where'd you get that? Where'd you get that? You're awful, you mean? Yeah, we did. <laughs> yes. I know. If you, if you, um, so we've got, I mean, right down from the stuff you buy at the pet shop that comes in a bag and shaped like a dog biscuit but smells of nothing. You know, it's shaped like a little plastic bone, and it could be plastic for all you know. It smells of nothing. Um, right down to stinky liver cake that's got the you know, the guts of sardines wrapped around the side of it, you know, and all the rest of it. Um, I tend to think, I I personally have never cooked a dog treat in my life. (laughs) I think it's the way you use the treat is probably more important than what you cook to put in it. But with the the ingredients that's in some of these foods today, I think you've got to be so careful what you use. Um, But most dog food, i.e. kibble, it's fat that is the element that gives off the best odor. Um, I remember many years ago when we had the sheep farm, we had a lamb that got rejected at the um, um, abattoir because it was too fat. I don't know where he had been and what he had done, but he was the size of a house. So when I looked at him, I thought, oof, you need to go down the road with the others. And he got rejected because there was going to be too much fat on it. So he basically told us to take it home after we had, you know, done the job. So that lived in the freezer for quite a while. And I remember taking the last joint down to dog training class. And I think one of the girls counted up that I had 17 dogs in the sit for Harry. He was called Harry, this lamb. Because <laughs> it was just, the fat was just dripping down my hands and every single dog in that room was there. Oh my goodness. Every single dog was there. So the fat content is what is going to be a strong contributor to the attractiveness of it, which is the same for us. 
you know, when you hear or smell something cooking, you know, that joint in, in the, you know, the oven or whatever, and all people that love cheese, it's the fat content in the cheese that makes it super. Yeah, so, so yummy. So um, mm -hmm. we've got, you know, and a lot of kibble is sprayed in fat. Yes, to make the yes. so that when you dampen it, you get that scent of food come off it straight away, and that's that's supposed to be the appetite stimulant. But we've got a good company now that produces pure meat products that are easy to handle. Uh, yeah, I can chop them into you know centimeter square cubes. They call it a pate, but it's 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 more like um, chub. Yes, um, it looks like it comes in like a sausage chub that's of right, some yeah, sort, yeah. and it slices yeah. very, very easily, and it's got good scent to it. I wouldn't want to leave it in my pocket for a day or two, but you know, if you've got it in a container or it's in a plastic bag, it, it's good because the scent of it, I can smell it, and it's certainly not offensive. And I think a, a treat yeah. for people to hold in their hands has got to be appropriate for the people as well as the as well as the dogs. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can remember back when I used to work with my uh, little Jack Russell a lot. I, I used a lot of fish-based treats because she absolutely adored them, and I didn't. Yes. <laughs> but I, I've stood next to somebody in a workshop. Um, well, actually, she sat next to me. And as the day got warmer, the smell that was coming off her was really quite offensive. And I, I'm sure I didn't want to say, you know, do you have a personal problem? Or, oh, my goodness, what have you got in your pocket? And it was the treat she had in her pocket, but she probably had lost the... You know, when you put on too much perfume, you stop smelling it after a while. But heavens above, it was most unpleasant. And that was fish-based stuff. So I, I've, again, yeah. it's not been my choice of um, treats. But I think if we use the But on the other. Sorry, if you use the food. Right, I was going to say it. We <laughs> keep jumping. I just keep thinking about seven dogs sitting for Harry. I can imagine 17. a bunch of people at a. At 17. A, oh, 17. Yes. Excuse yes. me for yes. undercounting that. Yeah. I can imagine at the seminar, people walk, a bunch of dogs following this woman around yeah. and yeah. all the humans yeah. avoiding her. Well, this was the evening class and the, most of the dogs knew me anyway. But once they saw that one or two dogs <laughs> were getting treats, they were they were not focused on what their owners were doing. And we trained mostly <laughs> off lead. So it was a question of, yes, I'm joining that party too. And they're all sitting and downing and here's for you and here's for you, one for you. You know, it's the old penguin thing where it's one fish for you, one fish for you. And that was the end of Harry. Mm. But I had to have a wash afterwards. Yes, because, you know, it seeps through your clothing and everything. Um, <laughs> okay. I think the way the treat is delivered is possibly part of the, you know, when people say, oh, I need to have a really high value treat. If yeah. you've got plain mm. food and the dog says, oh, I'm not too bothered about that, then at that time, I don't know that I'll be training. If the dog is not prepared to go, if all other things considered, this is something I would like, then I don't know that we necessarily need to change the food. I think we need to change the way we deliver the food. And that dog might benefit from chasing or catching or playing little secret games with the food, you know, where you sort of like a magician that doesn't know where the food's going to come from. There's more curiosity in it. There's more value in the way you deliver it to the dog. I think that's the added value of the food, not more cooking. Yes, it's not always right. scent-based. Right. I think we need scent to say that this is food. It's not rubber. Oh, that's good. Um, but there again, look, I've, I've given a dog a piece of rubber by mistake because it was in the pocket and he just ate and swapped it. <laughs> <laughs> and you found it later. Yeah, maybe and, not. well, yeah. yeah. And we've also used air cookies. <laughs> One of the Gordons, because he liked to catch treats, used to jump up and catch them. And so I, I pretended to throw a treat. And it wasn't until the sixth treat that he realized that I wasn't throwing anything at all. But he jumped up oh, and catched it. <laughs> I just wondered how long he would go on with air cookies. Five five <laughs> behaviors before he realized 
I don't think I've eaten anything here. This is this is a bit of a con. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes but you need does... the treat to be. Um, so sometimes we do chasing games with the food, and we had this lady come down after I explained what we we're going to do to teach the recall. She came down with mozzarella balls. Now I'm not a cheesy, so I don't shop in that that section. But these were like white ping pong balls. And as she lobbed them down the room, I have never seen a dog that was disinterested in food have so much fun. Little um, terrier type of thing. And oh, it absolutely. belted across that room. So, of course, we got fantastic recalls because it was anticipating Kill Chase. But then I looked at the price of these mozzarella balls and the amount of fluff it picked up and dirt on the way as it went across the room. But functionally, it was good. The dog could see it. It moved. And the dog wanted it when it actually stopped moving. So if I need to have what I call a good chasing food, I will cook breast of chicken, cube it up so I don't fully cook it. I cook it probably for 70 80%. Cube it up. I wouldn't eat it myself at this stage. It's still slightly pinky. Um, into good, say, one-inch squares, one-inch chunks. I then put it back in the oven covered in oil, shunt it around quite a bit, take the heat off the oven till it's down to about you know the lowest it can go for about an hour and what happens is the outside crisps up because it's covered in oil and then when you bung that chicken across the floor it'll bounce it'll bounce in the most attractive way you've ever seen and you've got chasing chicken so chasing chicken is for those situations where you need the extra bit of activity in it chasing chicken gosh gosh (laughs) um this, I mean, we are going into reinforcement and we can't help but go through reinforcement when we talk about luring. Yeah, but yeah. let's talk about luring, just the absolute grind it down to using the lures. And then what are the, some of the more common mistakes that people make with luring? One yeah. of the things I see is people not trusting their dogs and keeping the lure too long. Well, it tends to turn into baiting and teasing. You know, which if you sort of half offer it and take it away, half offer it and take it away, that is just just unethical that's just just horrible to see so you need to be clear about what you want the dog to do so the very first thing is the dog's going to follow your hand wherever you take it so one of our first exercises is teaching people to um walk the dog to the left walk the dog to the right and you think oh that's easy but then you start to incorporate a turn so the dog walks to the left turns around walks to the right now that might mean you've got to swap hands with the treat but you want the dog to be able to see you do it so you've got to be able to judge how to maintain a focus but not be so slow that the dog starts to grab it you've also got to become aware of the sort of amount of space a dog needs to turn around and how they turn around do they turn around with their head in the air or is their head going down as they turn around and it's nearly always they will turn around with their head heading downwards as they go around so we do little games where you if you're going to lure a behavior I want you to know where the head is going to go. So luring is really only for behaviors where it goes nose first. I wouldn't lure a dog to walk backwards, for instance. So if the dog's going to sit, where would the head be when it has sat? Um, And most people look at me squinty-eyed on that. So let's have a look at a dog. Oh, there's a dog going to sit. Look at that. Where's its head when it's sat? So if this particular dog sits forwards by choice, then you'd use the lure slightly pulling the dog and its head's moving upwards, the muzzle moving upwards slightly. (coughs) Excuse me. But if this is a dog that sits backwards, 
then you'd use the opposite. The food would go back above the dog's ears, and then as you see the butt start to hit the ground, down would come the food underneath its face. How does the dog lie down? So I think luring, when taught well, has to incorporate how does this movement happen for this dog when there's no human intervention? Because very often people lure a dog to sit badly. And that's one of the things that is, you know, another area. If you're going to do a job a lot, a lot of repetition. So say you're going to use a computer mouse hundreds of times a day. Just one slight misangle of your wrist and that will start to cause issues further down the road. So a small movement that's probably not requiring a lot of fitness done slightly out of balance, as that multiplies the more times you do it, the faster that is going to go wrong. So if a dog's going to sit for their own pleasure in the garden, watch the birds, um, or if you're going to ask a dog to sit maybe 10 times a day, you want them to sit to put them on a lead, you want them to sit before you put the breakfast on the floor. You want them to sit before they go out the door. You want them to sit because you've got a bit of toast left over. You may ask a dog to sit for you 10 times a day. Uh, mm -hmm. Every day, that's 3,650 sits you've asked for over five years. Now, if that sit was structurally unbalanced for that dog, not only have you pushed the dog into a potential orthopedic issue, but you've also made it uncomfortable as well. And the minute we reinforce it, we're exaggerating the effort or the effect of what we're actually having on it. So teaching a dog to sit well, ask somebody to just eyeball this and check, is this the right sort of action this dog should be doing? You know, I see a lot of puppies sit and they don't sit so much as collapse at the rear end. So the pelvis is all rocked badly there's like a kink in the middle of the back the knees are tucked out and if it's a male labrador dog everything's hanging on the floor at the same time and they carry on re reinforcing <laughs> that for the next five years well this is not how yes. a male labrador should sit by the time he's nine months old he should be able to hold his pelvis upright and bend his knees properly you know um so just carrying on sitting in the puppy style would not be good for person or dog you know it, it needs to be done well and, of course, we're giving it reinforcement, so we're exaggerating it all the time. There you are, hating on the sit again there, Kay. Well, hating on the sit. It's, a, it's much – it's very burdened, I think, as a behavior. Very burdened. And that's our social history of perceiving that the sit is the obedient dog. Sit is the dog, you know. But if it's not done well, it's the same as you sitting badly at a desk year after year after year when you work. And if you speak to anybody that's had back problems, that's a killer. That's a killer. Yes, absolutely. If your interest has peaked and you want to learn more about the skills and application of luring, take a look at the episode notes for links to more information. There is also a link to sign up for the six-week online course on the skills of luring. That course starts May 8th on learningaboutdogs.com. Thanks for listening. Please leave a review on iTunes and also tell a friend if you're a fan of the podcast. <laughs>